the history of personal computing. History, history, history. History of Personal Computing. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the next installment of the History of Personal Computing podcast. We're at show 11, or three in binary, and we're moving into the next round of true consumer computers to come onto the scene. On today's show, we'll cover the introduction of Atari's personal computers, the Atari 400 and 800. I'm Jeff Salzman, and I'll be your host today. And I'm joined by my regular co host from Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, which was once known as Terminus, uh, David Grealish. Plus, we also have a special guest co-host, Randy Kendig, host of the Floppy Days podcast and co-host of the Antic podcast, who, by the way, had uh, started following us on Twitter. Welcome, Randy. Welcome, Randy. Thank you. Appreciate it, guys. I'm really happy to be on your podcast. I don't know about you, but I don't get a lot of chances to talk vintage computers with other people, so... I'm really excited to be able to talk to you guys tonight, and uh, especially about Atari computers. You're on two uh, other podcasts. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I know. I'm oh, just, on I'm, one of them, you don't talk to anybody, though. That's right. Right. I don't talk. I don't talk uh, to anybody on the show. I'm just. Yeah. I'm just a lonely guy. You know, <laughs> I so uh, yeah, I really appreciate you you asking me to come on, uh, Jeff. If you recall, you came on to Floppy Days and helped me out with uh, covering the video brain. And That's Dave, right. came, yeah. And Dave, you came on and we covered the Exe Sorcerer. Right. Live in front of the crowd at VCF Southeast. So that was you fun. both did such a great job that I'm really happy to return the favor. Oh, and you know, and speaking of your, one of your podcasts, Floppy Days, your, your personal podcast, uh -huh. um, I've listened to, I know she just put a show up today. We're recording on Wednesday evening, the 11th. So you just put a new interview up today, right? Or that was for Antic. Oh, is that Antic? Yeah. That okay, sorry. In <laughs> oh, passing, right. I was looking at different podcast uh, links and stuff. So, okay, well, there's an interview on Antic. came out today. Might as well mention it. But then you've had two recent interviews, and they're both really good. So maybe you can tell Thank the you. audience about that. So I enjoyed listening to those. Yeah, so I had an interview with uh, Paul Ceruzzi of the uh, Smithsonian Museum. He was really interesting to talk to. And he's also uh, authored some vintage computer books. And then um, I'm trying to think who the other one is. Who's the other one? That oh, um, Michael Swain and Paul Freiberger. Oh, yeah, is that how you say yeah. it? Freiberger? Freiberger? Freiberger. Freiberger. Okay. From uh, um, ah, Fire in the Valley. Fire in the Valley. Yeah. Yeah. It was really great talking with those guys. I, I really, uh, really enjoyed that. And, yeah. Uh, both good interviews. And, and just by the way, have you seen the, the documentary, The Machine That Changed the World? Right. You have know you what? Seen I have that? never seen that. Okay. Well, definitely you need to watch It's my favorite documentary about computer history. It's great. Even though it's 24 years old now, but it's history. So, but Paul Ceruzzi is in there, you know, not a lot per se, but sort of regularly. Obviously he's one of the experts they kind of bring on camera here and there throughout. So just to mention that to you. Okay. Yeah. I'm definitely going to have to look that up and, uh, you know, and view that. I, I, he didn't mention that on the interview. So yeah, it's so long ago. <laughs> Yeah. But it's a great documentary. I, mean, I was always bringing that up. Okay. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. Uh, that was nice. I've got another interview coming up here before long, too, with uh, somebody named Eric Inga, who was mm -hmm. involved with Phoenix Technologies, who had developed the BIOS for, uh, you know, the um, they had copied, not copied, but um, clean roomed. Mm, a yeah. version of the of the IBM BIOS and, and sold that to a lot of uh, personal computer companies. That started a trend. Yes, yeah. <laughs> go ahead, Jeff. I didn't know if we lost you again. Oh, I, <laughs> I'll, I'll let. You, that's why I'm kind of watching this. And just just to let the listeners know is uh, my side of this conversation is being held together with duct tape and band aids. <laughs> so <laughs> almost literally. Hopefully the audio. Yeah. Hopefully the audio will stay clean. But anyway, I'm sorry to interrupt there. Go, go ahead and finish what you were saying, Randy. Well, no, I was just, I was really pretty much done. I was just going to say that I got an interview with him and I will be uh, putting that up on Foppy Days later this month 
So if you have any interest in learning more about what went on with Phoenix Technologies, uh, you know, tune in and listen. Yes, make sure you add Floppy Days podcast to your list of podcasts, everybody. All yeah, right. Do, do that. Maybe I'll have more than two listeners. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it makes my way to work. I, yeah. your, your podcast about as long as my trip to work. I was going to say, come on, Randy. I know more than just Jeff and I listen. <laughs> <laughs> okay, maybe there are three listeners. I yeah, don't it's got to be a third one it's at least. Something out there. like that. <laughs> a, a mystery listener. Anyhow, on with the show, I guess. The uh, History of Personal Computing podcast is your bi-weekly stroll through the development of the most significant tool ever invented, the personal computer. But just what is a personal computer these days? That's a good question, since it continues to evolve. So we're looking back at that evolution, one computer at a time. We wanted to create a unique new podcast about old computers and their history. So our stroll in the Virtual pers Personal Computing Museum is through audio, and we post all of our writing and notes on our website. We generally discuss the machines in a date order within tiers, and tiers are in reference to the tiers of personal computing, which continue to evolve. In the past, they developed as the desktop, the laptop, and smartphone, though now they are best described as the laptop, tablet, and smartphone. Yes, and smartphone is what's helping me save my side <laughs> here right now. Uh, anyway, so on today's show, we're talking, or actually we're covering the Atari's first computer systems, the Atari 400 and the Atari 800. And I must tell you, even as a Commodore disciple myself, I'm quite impressed with this line of computers. I was reading a book on Atari graphics uh, since the last episode of uh, History of Pers Personal Computing and was impressed with the power of the bitmap graphics on that thing. If price wasn't an issue back in the day, I would probably have bought an Atari 400 instead of a VIC-20 computer. The VIC-20 just fit my parents' budget a lot better. Now today I do own one of each 400 and 800 along with a few accessories. I also have, and I don't know if Randy uh, knows about these, the Indus GT drive. Uh, oh yeah. Mm -hmm. I have one complete in its case. Um, got that a long time ago. Um, most of the stuff was given to me from someone's closet cleaning event two decades ago. That's how long I've had them. Um, I really haven't done anything with them since, but I plan to invest some time exploring their capabilities like I did last year with my Apple II and TI-99 collection. And I don't have one anymore, but I used to have one and I used it with a Commodore 64. So does it work? Doesn't it go? Does it work with both or does it have to be specifically for one or the other? Do you know? The Indus GT drive? The Indus GT drive has the SIO uh, connection. I think they built them specifically for which one you okay. needed to use it for. I guess the, that makes the, sense. Actually, the Indus or any of the drive will work with either of those computers because they they both have an SIO port on them. So, uh, so just a cable? Any of, oh, yeah, any of, the, any of the peripherals Commodore? will work with it. Pa pa pardon me? I, 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 maybe I misheard David. I thought he mentioned he, he had one for a Commodore. Yeah, I had one that worked with a, uh, unless I'm mistaken. I mean, it was some years ago, but I'm pretty oh, sure I'm it worked with the Commodore 64, the one I had. I'm sorry, I misunderstood. I oh. thought you were asking whether the Indus would work with both, you know, with the 400 and the 800. But, oh, uh, no, I'm sorry. No, I, I don't know like, if the Indus would, drive, I don't know if the same drive would work. It probably across. has a different connection for the cable, right? Yeah. Now I'm thinking yeah, about right. it. Sorry I think they that. change the interface guts between the two, but it's the same drive otherwise. That would make sense because yeah. then you're using the same, like in the Commodore uh, instance, you're using that same cable uh, disk drive. Anyway, I didn't get mean to get off on that. But um, so just to mention, we uh, last show, we skipped the Atari computers because we wanted to de dedicate a full show to these two important machines. So this show, we're covering the 400 and 800 again, and they are both released in November of 1979 and were the first substantial additions to the three other lines of consumer computers that debuted in 1977, Apple, Commodore, and Radio Shack, which we've already covered. So Atari Incorporated was founded in the United States in 1972 by Nolan Bushnell and Ted Dabney as a video arcade game company. Their first product was the stand-up video arcade Pong, which went on to become a major hit and is considered the primary catalyst for the start of the modern video game industry. The original company was closed and its assets split in 1984 as a direct result of the video game crash of 1983. I've owned both the 400 and 800 in the past, 
um, when I had a much larger collection, but I've never really used one as my main computer or I never had much software. I, I haven't really used one very much over time, though I've had a couple as collectibles. So let's get started just talking a little bit about um, use guys as history <laughs> with the Atari personal computers, Randy and Jeff. So Randy, why don't you why don't you start off? You know, I'd be happy to, except I've never used one. <laughs> never? That was that was a joke, guys. Sorry. So um, your entire podcast, the entire antique stuff is yeah. just straight from memory. It's you, all, it's all made up, you know. I just okay. I just make it up. You lied on the entrance exam. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, well, I'd be happy to tell my. Uh, I'll try to keep it short here, but my story about the Atari and how I ended up getting one. So I've mentioned several times on Foppy Days that I my first home computer was a TRS-80 Model 1, which I owned from 79 to about 81. And I really liked that machine, but it just had a black and white screen. Uh, it was very expensive to expand it. And, uh, you, you know, you had to have a separate expansion interface to add more memory or to add disk drives. Had no sound capabilities at all. And bad. by about 80, 81, I was starting to get a little, eh, I don't want to say tired of it, but I was ready to move on to something can, else. Can I interrupt Randy and ask yeah, you, did you buy absolutely. it? Did you buy it secondhand at the time or, or was it new? The TRS-80 Model 1? Yeah. No, I bought it brand new from Radio Shack in 79. Was it a, uh, at that point, was it a, um, oh, what am I trying to say? It did it have level the, two? the up, yeah, level two upgrade, I guess, standard. No, I actually got the level one 4K version of the TRS-80 Model One. Huh? Yeah, okay. they were running, I think, like 4.99 at the time. All right. I guess I kind of assumed, or I thought that you know, after like the first year, the introduction, that they they upgraded them and they were sold that way. I didn't really know that. They still offered, uh, obviously, at least until late '79. They still offered the level one 4k version so i don't know at what point they actually uh, you know quit offering that but yeah they want to save money on the upgrade i would just yes. come out of college so I, I had to start at the very bottom <laughs> but i did i did upgrade it to 16k at some point and uh also upgraded to level two basic but um really to go any further it cost a lot of money because you had to go the expansion interface route so by that time, by 81, or I'm sorry, by, uh, yeah, by about 81, I was starting to look around and I saw the Atari 800 with its, what I thought was a beautiful design, excellent keyboard, and of course the outstanding graphics and sound. And it really made the Model 1 look kind of uh, old in comparison. And uh, so I also looked at the 400. And although it was less money and no less capable, I really didn't like the membrane, membrane keyboard on it and was kind of turned off by that. So I ended up selling my Model 1 to a company that advertised in one of the computer magazines. And uh, yeah, from another vendor in that same magazine, I ordered an Atari 800. And I remember it was about $700 with a basic cartridge. And... I did not order any other peripherals with it at the time, did not have a cassette drive, but uh, pretty quickly I got one of those and eventually added an 810 disk drive and even moved on to the XL line later when my 800 failed on me. So uh, that's, that's kind of my story with the Atari 8-bits. Now today I have six different Atari 8-bits, all wow. the way from the 400-800 through the XL and XE line. And even the XEGS, the game system. Huh. And I've got an 810 and a 1050 disk drive, lots of cartridges, lots of books, lots of hardware upgrades. So I've pretty much gone all out with the Ataris at this point. And Randy, when you so, bought when you bought your Atari 800, did you consider a uh -huh. 400? Yeah. Oh, I see. I'm sorry. Saying, you said something about that. I did consider it. And I looked at them. And actually, my wife tried to talk me into the 400 it because was... it was less less money <laughs> yeah how much that's what i meant to ask you. how much less was it um you know instead of the i think 700 dollars i paid for the 800 it might have been 549 or something oh, yeah. for the 400. So well worth that so it was quite a money. bit less and you had limited expandability with the 400 yeah 
Yeah, that's true. There's only one cartridge port on it. And to go beyond 16K, you had to actually buy a 48K uh, cartridge to put in it, which, you know, was more expensive than trying to upgrade an 800 to 48K. Sorry. I see on you know, the show notes you had mentioned that, but then I had kicked my toe into the desk oh, <laughs> when you were okay. talking. Anyway. <laughs> we'll accept that, Dave, I, I guess. So I'm sitting here holding like a, what, wet, a wet paper towel on my toe. So anyways. Is that what quickly muted on your end? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. I thought I heard something in the background. <laughs> so yeah, that was my story. Hmm. How about you, yeah. Jeff? Well, other than what I mentioned earlier, um, I, I, I recall the first time discovering these computers, there was a line of department stores that there was, um, at least in the Northeast United States, called Mailman's. Uh, I first saw the Atari 400 and 800 in the electronics department near the Atari and Intellivision video game systems in that store. I was already familiar with like the TRS-80 personal computer, uh, so I understood the concept of home computers, but this one had color, um, and it hooked up to a TV. And at the store, I poked around on them a little bit, making them print hello and stuff like that, but they were a bit pricey, so basically I resigned myself to the fact that I wouldn't be getting one anytime soon. My parents just aren't going to buy one for me. And I wasn't in a position to make money because, you know, I was still in, in school at the time. Um, but then I started seeing those models show up at the various department stores in the meantime. So I saw them grow into existence, you know, before I ended up getting on the Commodore wag bandwagon and kind of like was Randy was saying how he went with his collection of Atari stuff. I kind of did something similar with, with Commodore, which we'll hear in later episodes of, of this podcast. So Max, I guess, I guess that's what we all do. Yep. All right. Yeah, Let's dig into it. Sorry. Go I ahead, Randy. I was just going to say, I don't want you to want to give you the impression that's all I own because I've got a I, lot. I'm sure you own a lot of stuff. You probably have yeah. stuff tucked away like I do. Yeah. <laughs> More than I you can really that, use. You have that one that you're drawn to, right? Yeah, exactly. What did you yeah. finally replace Atari with? I actually replaced it. I stuck with Atari and went to the 16-bit line, the Atari ST. Oh, okay. Before I uh, succumbed and went the IBM PC route, and okay. regretted that ever since. But you know, <laughs> let's dig into this Atari stuff. Go ahead, Randy. Why don't you uh, start us out with the introduction? Okay, well, yeah, if you don't mind, I'll talk about the history a little bit. And a lot of this information is coming from the uh, Atari history book that Kurt Vendell and Marty Goldberg wrote. And uh, I would certainly recommend that book if you want to learn more about the history of Atari. And they're actually working on the second uh, book of the three-book series that they're planning. Wow, right I didn't know it was going to be a three-book series. <laughs> yeah, three-book series. And the second one is getting ready to come out before too long. And is it, isn't it so, it called something like Business is Fun or something like that? Well, the first one is business is fun. Okay. And the second one is business is war, because the second one is uh, about the time when Jack Tramiel came in and took over, and that was kind of his motto, you know, business is war. So, huh. yeah. So anyway, a lot of this information is coming from that, and uh, I would certainly recommend getting those if you want to learn more about it. But uh, Atari began development of the 400 and 800 in 1977 and they used the code names candy for the 400 and colleen for the 800 now the rumor is that these names came from some hot secretaries there at atari so i don't know that anyone's ever actually confirmed that but uh, that that's the rumor at least so candy was intended to be the next generation of video game system it was meant to replace the uh, bcs that was really their, you know, their game system of the time. And uh, so Candy was supposed to be the follow-up machine. Colleen was always meant to be a true home computer with some additional bells and whistles to make it, you know, better, a better machine as a computer, including additional ports and expansion capabilities. In fact, there was also a third machine that they were working on called Elizabeth, which was the same design as the Colleen, but was supposed to have a built-in 13-inch color monitor. They were trying to be like the Atari Pet, right? 
Yeah. Yeah, something like that. So in, in uh, early 79, they finally made the de uh, final decision on what candy was going to look like. It was They decided it was not only going to be a game machine, but it was actually going to also be a low-end computer system with a built-in keyboard. Prior to that, they didn't even plan on putting a keyboard on the thing. It was just supposed to be a game machine. And, but they decided since that it was going to be more of an introductory computer for children, that they would put a spill-proof membrane keyboard on it, but um, that they would also put the SIO port on it so that it could be expanded with other peripherals. And now that it had been moved to being a personal computer, it really no longer was going to be a replacement for the VCS, and and which which actually ended up uh, costing Atari in the long run, I think, because they ended up not really having, or it took them much longer to come out with something to replace the VCS with. And um, if they had gone with their original design of the candy being a replacement, you know, maybe they had would have done better going forward. But... Um, if talking about the 400 a little bit and, and its design, it's 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 kind of a unique wedge-shaped design, and it was really meant to be a laptop computer, not a laptop computer in terms of of what we think of today as a laptop computer, but they designed it to be something that you could actually sit it in your lap, connect it to a TV, and use it that way. And then the 800 was really designed to be more like a futuristic typewriter, something that would be easily recognizable by everyone. And people already knew what typewriters were, knew how to use them. So they thought that if they designed the 800 to look like a futuristic typewriter, that um, you know people would, would be drawn to it a little better, a little easier. Yeah, it's, it certainly did have that uh, aggressive look to it, aggressive futuristic yeah. look. Yeah, and it does somewhat, you know, if you look at the, typewriters, particularly electric typewriters of the day, you know, it, it kind of has that look and, and feel to it. So it has, uh, one thing I wanted to mention too about that, it has SIO ports on it. And that was the peripheral option that they decided to go with. Um, they kind of designed it to be a daisy chain situation. So you could, you'd have an SIO port on the computer. You could daisy, you could connect an SIO peripheral um, depending on the peripheral, it may have an SIO port on it. You could keep daisy chaining peripherals, which would make it much easier for people and much less intimidating, I guess, for people to expand them because they didn't have to open up the machine to expand them. And uh, it turns out that the guy who actually designed the SIO port, Joe DeCur, actually then later designed the USB port and... Um, there's a lot of similarity, similarities between the SIO and the and the USB port. So a little bit of trivia there. I wonder if do either of you know the difference? Like the Commodore has the serial port you know, connection and you can daisy chain drives, right? I know you can daisy chain drives. Yeah. Isn't yeah. so isn't it similar to this? I know it's probably slower than this connection. But is there so is there actually a similarity between those those two ports, the Atari one and the Commodore? I don't know that I could tell you whether they are. I don't know enough about the Commodore to you know be able to answer that. I know kind of how it works on the Atari side. I guess other than they're they're both serial and you can also daisy chain. I know drives at least right. on a Commodore sixty four. So I guess they're similar in that sense. Yeah, it's probably a similar design. It's all it's all serial. Let's get into the system specs of these uh, Atari computers. Both systems use a one point seven nine megahertz sixty five oh two CPU, very common CPU along with various coprocessors, which was a rather novel feature for a home computer at the time, that share various computing tasks such as graphics, sprite collision, and sound. The 400 comes with 8K of RAM. Uh, the newer models had 16K of RAM. The 800 has 8K and is expandable to 48K. Both systems possess a 10K ROM, a 40 by 25 text display, along with various bitmap graphic modes up to 320 by 192 pixels, a 128 color palette, which was very formidable, 
and four sound voices spanning a 3.5 octave range. The 400 has a 61 key membrane keyboard, um, and the 800 has a standard style 61 key full stroke keyboard. So membrane keyboard probably wasn't really good for people who like to touch type, but it obviously made that computer a little cheaper for them to build so you can get into the you know entry level Atari for not a whole lot of money. And I love the keyboard on the 800. It's a really nice keyboard. Was it the... is, but it's it's kind of fun typing on the 400, though. Like I said, oh, was it I a bad know. keyboard other than the obvious? I mean, that it's not full stroke? You was mean the, uh, 400? the 400? Yeah. Well, you just have to press really hard on on things because it's just, you know, it's just a membrane. Okay. And you have to press hard it was, with it. I think it was better than the ZX80. <laughs> All right. Well, yeah, that's probably true. <laughs> Because you didn't have to tighten up your fingers to get on the home row keys. Yeah. You had the wider spacing. Now, although uh, both the 400 and 800 supported a video output for an NTSC color composite monitor, they were also able to connect directly to a TV antenna input. And this is one of the first out-of-box computers to do so. Well, the um, ZX80 was able to do that, but the a lot of home computers were starting to do this because people had TVs and they didn't want to spend money for monitors. Hmm. Now, as far as uh, expansion, the 400 had a single cartridge slot, which was usually used for game cartridges or for the basic cartridge. Now, you can correct me if I'm wrong here, Randy, but I'm pretty sure you had to have this basic cartridge to be able to do any kind of general programming on the thing, or you, you had to have a language cartridge, right? You did, because if you didn't, it just booted up into the memo pad, and all you could do was type on the screen. That's Let's it. Kids have at it, yep. Yeah. <laughs> now, the 800 had two cartridge slots called left cartridge and right cartridge, respectively. The right cartridge slot was intended to support any left side cartridges. I guess it was like extra RAM or expanded RAM or, or some hardware feature like that. But very, very few right side cartridges were actually made. Uh, and I think eventually they just ignored the right side cartridge in later builds. Hmm. Um, That's now, behind behind the Atari 800's cartridge slots, there was memory expansion slots, which used specially designed cartridges to increase the maximum RAM. And is there any additional vital specifications I may have forgotten? I just wonder why, what was the reasoning why they couldn't have made left and right just like the same, where like it wouldn't matter where you plugged in a cartridge. Obviously, there must be a technical I, reason. Well, they, they I, covered different memory areas. You know, if you that's put what I was one, thinking. Yeah, they, there's like a hole in memory that that once the right slot would uh, fill when you put a cartridge right. in there. So I guess you could put like maybe a four or eight K cartridge in the left and another four or eight K in the right. Yeah. Um. So you would, and I guess any cartridges that would use the right cartridge would have to have an associated left cartridge to work properly. That's as near as I get out of it. Okay. Yeah, and we uh, we kind of went into that in detail. Kevin went through all the different right cartridge, right cartridges that were ever created. There were there weren't very many at all. So if you go back to an older episode of Antique, you can you hear more about and you know just exactly how many there were and and what they were. There, like I said, there was maybe a dozen, if that. It wasn't very many. Do any of you guys own any of those? Kevin does. I don't. Hmm. I know I don't have a right cartridge. I have the memory expansions for my 800. Yeah, there. Uh, I think you mentioned there were three slots in there, right? For for memory. Well, actually, there are four slots. So if you I open the 800 up, there's a number of. <laughs> yeah, if you open the 800 up, there's actually four slots in there, and one is for the ROM, and then there were three others for memory. And normally, you had three 16K uh, memory cards in there. So my turn, moving along, we're going to talk just a little bit more about the company. So a um, little more background is in 1966, Nolan Bushnell saw the early computer game of Space War being played at the University of Utah. He thought that there was a definite potential for a commercial coin-op version, so he partnered with Ted Dabney several years later to work on a hand-wired version, which would play on a standard black-and-white television. The final product was called Computer Space and was released in 1971 by the coin-op company Nutting Associates. The game uh, was not a success in their standard markets, 
which were taverns. So the team looked to create an easier game, and they started their own company, uh, which was Atari in 1972. And I, I found that kind of interesting. I guess, uh, you know, computer space is a little too complex for people in bars. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it didn't go over very well. So Atari hired Al Alcorn as their first design engineer. And when Bushnell saw a demonstration of the Magnavox Odyssey game console, he decided to have Alcorn produce an arcade version of the Odyssey's tennis game. This product would go on to become Pong, and eventually Magnavox sued Atari and won. Atari had to pay them a licensing fee, a licensing fee after that. Uh, many people, which uh, including myself before now, believe that Atari invented Pong, but this was, of course, not the case. Plus, um, the Magnav Magnavox Odyssey came to the market three years before Atari's Pong game consoles you know, first came on the market. Atari's Pong console did well, and it was upgraded a number of times. Then in October 1977, the company released the Atari 2600, or VCS, for video computer system, and it became the most successful gaming console of its time. Also noteworthy is that Jack Trammell stormed out of a January 13, 1984 meeting of Commodore's board of directors and never returned to the company. Later, in July of 1984, he purchased a consumer division of Atari Incorporated from Warner Communications, and he renamed it Atari Corporation, and went on to produce the 16-bit Atari ST line. I think uh, jokingly referred to as the Jackintosh. Yeah, and, that's uh, right. We will be discussing the 2600 and ST and much more in later episodes of our podcast. Stay tuned. Let me know when you do the ST, because I'd certainly be interested in uh, joining you on that one, too. Ah. <laughs> you can yeah. use your insight. Sounds maybe, good. Maybe my connection will work better next time. <laughs> I should be doing this on a uh, Atari anyway. It'd probably be a little more stable than what I'm working with now. It probably would. Oh, That's a good point. Yeah. <laughs> It'll be a little 8-bit sounding, but hey. Now, the legacy of the Atari uh, computers. Some some notes and stuff that uh, we find, you know, on how how these things were used or, you know, what came to fruition while they were in existence. Um, one thing was the uh, Atari software acquisition program called ASAP, perhaps one of the earliest attempts by a computer manufacturer to tap the general public for useful and productive software. I think Apple may have done something too, but... Um, now, geared towards uh, software genres other than games, Atari promoted contests and offered software publishing opportunities under the Atari Program Exchange moniker, or APX, for anyone from professional software writers to simply even the most savvy armchair developer. Atari was looking for more business, educational, and personal finance applications to augment their library of software, which was on the verge of being completely overrun with games. Not that the games weren't good uh, or a good way to exploit the capabilities of the, uh, of the Atari line of computers, but having a substantial productivity software selection lends professional credence to something that would have been otherwise considered to be a glorified video game machine. Did it work? Uh, did, that bring, did that bring much well, to fruition? Not, I know I, I didn't hear much, but then again, I wasn't a big Atari person at the time. I, I know of its existence. I don't know where it went or if the library of software was a result of this, but they, you know, Atari didn't like to give people credit. They'll pay uh, them. They didn't like to give people credit. So that's my guess as why you don't hear much of it, but there's probably people listening. Hopefully there's people listening that may know more about it. And, you know, we invite their feedback. Have you guys discussed um, this, Randy? Uh, APX. We, huh? we've not really talked about it on Antic yet, but, uh, we have, uh, Kevin's done an interview with uh, the person who actually ran the APX program at Atari. Wow. So you, you can certainly listen to that interview if you want to find out more about it. But I thought APX was a great program, and there were a lot of uh, good applications that came out of it. Hmm. But, um, yeah, you know, I think it was, it was a great um, attempt to try to get more software developed and to get it out there and to get people developing for the machine. Uh, I don't know why they ended up, well, I don't think they ended up actually dropping it until the computers themselves kind of were dying out. I want to say my, my all time favorite uh, box art, you know, was on, I, I guess it carried across to a lot of the Atari 2600 game box art, but also the Atari software. I don't know what would you call that style, but it was really, <laughs> you know, what I'm referring yeah, to had, that style, had the, like the lines, 
it was like brown or like a grayish. Well, it was kind of like photorealistic and it would be like people's faces and pictures merging into other pictures. And I don't know. It's certainly looked early 80s. Yeah, but I love that. It was great. I mean, I know the documentary uh, Get Lamp, you know, um, you use that style on their art. Yeah, a styled uh, software. That might be another legacy for the Atari system that kind of led onto things because, you know, Commodore eventually styled their boxes. You can recognize Commodore software. And I know uh, TI did that too. So, yeah, that's probably some of the legacy, you know, stylized software to match a theme. Randy, do you think, um, do you think because the, obviously the Atari computers were made by Atari, do you think that kind of hurt them maybe in a lot of, in some ways of not, you know, their game computers? Because of the game gaming uh, view by the public. Yeah. It could be, I mean, that could be why the Atari 8-bit computer, although it was perfectly capable of doing productivity software, you know, people didn't think of Atari when they, right. When one of the productivity machine right so well, especially coming, certainly it had hurt in that regard yeah coming after a game console <laughs> yeah yeah i'm sure that i'm sure that uh they would have preferred well you know to atari themselves if you if you read some of the history atari themselves wasn't sure how they wanted to market this machine because at one point in time they wanted to market it as a game machine right at another right. point they wanted to market more of the productivity side and then they changed their mind and they wanted to market the um, the game part of it. I've got an interview with Al Alcorn that I haven't published yet for Antic, and he talks about that a little bit. How they just kept changing their mind, and they didn't really know, you know, how they wanted to market it, and, and that had to hurt. Yeah, which is ironic because obviously it's a, you know, modern computers are general purpose computers that can do anything. Right. Right. It's making Atari sound so much like Commodore. Yeah, because Commodore kind of had the same problem too, but I think mostly because they were so cheap maybe was the other reason and the color and the sound and, you know, I, I think, but also we all know that the gaming is really what launched this consumer grade personal computing, you know, the late seventies into the eighties, right? It was kind of the foundation mm-hmm. of really growing the market. Mm-hmm. The, uh, sure. Atari didn't get William Shatner like Commodore did. They got <laughs> Alan Alda. <laughs> oh, that's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, we Anyhow. tried to get an interview with him. <laughs> Did you try to? Alanada. Yeah, we tried to and got turned down. Wow. wow. <laughs> yeah. He's a busy guy. Oh, I bet. I know. I so, haven't seen him recently, but I know he was still in, you know, had some fairly major roles in movies and stuff. He kind of turned into a bad guy in the movies. He did. He, he's kind of taking those bad guy roles now. Yeah, he's an old, old white bad guy in politics yeah. and stuff like that. Wasn't he in the blacklist uh, too? Yeah, he's in the blacklist. I was going to say he is. He's a bad guy on the blacklist. <laughs> so he didn't have time for us. <laughs> I, I think, if if you don't mind my saying, um, one other legacy perhaps of the machine is, I think the Atari computer line was really the first line or the first computer that came out that had the graphics and sound capabilities that it had. I mean, it just went... I mean, look what was out at the time that it came out. Yeah, in 79, yeah. 28 colors, uh, individually addressed yeah. bitmap, uh, and and high resolution, or actually multiple resolutions. So you can scale your what scale to what you need based on how much memory you have. And as I mentioned earlier, I was reading that book about Atari graphics, and I just really couldn't believe that's what it was like. Yeah, I mean, look at what the competition was at the time it came out. You had the Terrace Model 1. You had the Commodore PET. I mean, there were a few other machines. Yeah, the only thing close Apple to II. it would have been Apple II. Yeah, the Apple II. But the Apple II had graphics, but it was pretty hard to program those. And it didn't yeah. have specialized chips for graphics like the Atari did. Yeah. And it had it didn't have very good sound capabilities, unlike the Atari. So, I mean, when it came out, it was really pretty revolutionary in terms of the capabilities that it had. Now, other companies caught up, Commodore and, right. and so on caught up with, with that, but uh, I think they were really the first, that was the first machine that really, and, and the thing that always that caught my eye, and one of the reasons I bought it, is that it was optimized to use on a television set. 
I mean, it was optimal yes. for that situation. And if that's what you wanted, you couldn't get anything better than that. Hmm. Yeah, I guess they, they definitely took a lesson from gaming consoles for that. Yeah, yeah. And you're right. Um, you know, you kind of naturally want to compare it, I do anyway, to the Commodore 64. But the Commodore 64 came out, you know, three or so years later. Right, right. Well, even the, when the VIC-20 came out, that had problems with bitmap graphics, too. Yeah, and I don't remember what year it came out. I remember when it came out. I remember William Shatner advertising the VIC-20. But, I mean, in terms of power, it, it like you said, it had color graphics, but the text was, what, uh, 20 by... It was 23 by 22. 22 by, yeah, and... <laughs> and the graphics were not very high resolution, and and it just. But it was it, affordable at the time. It was, yeah. My my I've, parents, uh, the Vic Twenty came out in eighty one, and I think I got one of the first ones that came out within three months of it went on the U.S. market. I've realized I've wasted my life. <laughs> <laughs> How's that, Dave? <laughs> but not having an Atari. Oh well, yeah. I mean, I could have told you that a long time ago. Yeah, yeah I kind of that I... it too. So I'm going to get into it this year. I'm going to break out my Atari set like I did the other ones and and see what see what it does. It's that SIO port for interfacing that just kind of messes it up for me. Mm. It's a pretty easy protocol to figure out and and to use though. If just you getting wanna... the cables. Yeah. Oh well, for those who don't have the systems. Um, Let's see. This is a very formidable emulation list. I know I didn't put it together. Did you, David? No, I guess Randy. I, I Randy. did. Go ahead. Go ahead. Can you take it, Randy? Sure. Go the so I just wanted list. to. There are a lot of emulators out there for the Atari 800. So, if you don't have a real one and you don't want to go out and get one, although I prefer the you know the real hardware myself, there are certainly some good emulators. Whether you're running on Windows. I mean, there's, uh, I, I think Atari 800 Win Plus is probably the best one out there for Windows. But there's also one called Altera that's pretty good, and another one called Xformer. And we'll have links to those in the show notes. Um, even on a Mac, there's, uh, there's one called Atari 800 Mac X that's pretty good. And I use that occasionally when I'm going to test some software. And you can even get. Uh, one called Atari 800 that will run on Linux machines, including the Raspberry Pi. Oh, I got so, one of those. I got to try it out. It, yeah, I just got one of those myself just uh, a couple the new weeks one, ago. The brand new, I did. The, oh, the, no, not the, the two. The, not the two, I got okay. The, I got the B+. Plus. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And there are even emulators that will run on iOS and Android. So... There's one called, I think it's if called Colleen. If you get that keyboard, it'll work for you. If you what, Jeff? I haven't, you have to get that little keyboard to work, though, that little one-screen keyboard to work with those emulators. It's, that's what makes it tough. Oh, right, right. That actually kind of makes it tough for all the emulators hmm. because the, the Atari, you know, kind of added its own unique keyboard, and uh, if you don't have some of those keys, it's kind of hard to do things. So that's pretty much it about uh, uh, emulators. And we'll have those links in the show notes for people to uh, try out for themselves. And and one of these days I'll do a, uh, a little museum entry to show people how to get them started. Anything else anybody has before I go on to some interesting history? Nope. <laughs> All right. <laughs> I, I just didn't know if I lost my connection again. <laughs> We're still here. <laughs> We're making it through this far, listeners. Um, cross your fingers that uh, we'll actually get to the end of this podcast. Um, I, I was going through some old uh, newspaper archives, and I found some pretty interesting um, call them footnotes in history of how the Atari worked its way into the public. Uh, well, one thing I found back in October 1982, the Harris Department Store in San Bernardino, California, gave away an Atari 400 with the purchase of a 32-piece <laughs> towel sterling Silver dinnerware set. <laughs> That's funny. The re yeah, the retail price of dinnerware set started at twelve hundred and ninety nine dollars, um, and but if you bought one, you got a free Atari four hundred, or you probably had mm. to wait six to eight six to eight weeks for delivery or something. 
Also, um, in 1982, the Live Oak Elementary School in Santa Cruz, California, was doing something that was somewhat unusual. While other schools having computers in their classrooms were typically stocked with Apple or TRS-80 computers, a slow-growing trend at the time, of course, uh, the Live Oak Elementary School had eight Atari 400 computers set up in their school library for student use. Of course, these computers were used for, quote, learning purposes only, right? When we nudge, <laughs> right. nudge. Right, right. Because that's what we all did when we used those computers. We That's right. We, uh, did our work. We did our homework on them. And I, I don't think any of us were in elementary school in 1982, were we? <laughs> no. Uh, I, wasn't. I wasn't, huh? <laughs> I'll admit it. I wasn't. <laughs> I don't think my brother was either. I think he just went into junior high. Um, and the Atari 400 was offered as an option for a specialized robot called the DC-2 or Drink Caddy 2, created by the Robot Factory in 1982. Well, all this stuff happened in 82. It must have been a banner year for the Atari. Um, now, we're not sure if the Atari actually performed any function in the robot other than to give people something to do when the robot came around to them at parties with their drinks. I do want to say I want this robot. I wish I could find this robot. I've never heard I of the robot factory. More on it, But hey, it's in the paper, so it must be true. Yeah, I bet if you ever saw one online on eBay or something, you'd probably go for a fortune. I'd, I'd rather buy a Hero 1 from Heathkit. <laughs> yeah, this sounds pretty cool, though. All right. Let's uh, kick it back in here. I don't know how long my battery's going to last. For those who um, want one or don't want to do emulation, let's find out how much it'll cost you to get one. We'll do our um, eBay valuations section. We'll start off with Randy. He picked out a couple of uh, uh, Atari home computer systems and peripherals and tell us a little bit about these yeah i thought uh you know if somebody wanted to get started and they wanted to get started with one of the original machines rather than the xl or xe line which i know you guys aren't covering in this particular podcast but uh i found an atari 800 out on ebay with 48k in the original box and uh, it's it's actually not particularly easy to find them in their original box. I would love to have one in its original box. I don't right now. But uh, they want a $50 starting bid plus shipping. Now, I would expect this to go somewhere in the $75, $80, maybe even $100 because it has original box range. That's kind of typically what they go for. They don't go for a huge amount of money. They're not particularly rare, I guess. And then to go along with that, I picked out an Atari A10 disk drive, which was the model that they developed specifically for the 400 and 800. And it is, it's untested, but um, they're going, they're asking $50 or best offer with free shipping. Okay. So I think I bought one that was fully tested and had been fully restored. You know, the guy had, uh, had worked on it and made it uh, conform to original specifications. And he also included discs and everything. And I think I spent $75 with shipping. So that's approximately what you'd have to pay for an A10, a working A10. I like the, um, I like the style of the peripherals, the disc yeah. drives and all. They're big, though. They're huge. Yeah, I've seen them. <laughs> I mean, but so massive. are the Commodore ones. And imagine these are earlier, oh, yeah. so... And it's for the same reason, because a lot of the smarts are inside mm -hmm. the peripherals. They're not on the computer. So the disk controller and everything is right on the drive. Okay, my turn. So I picked um, two that were completed. And so this one is, I thought it was a good example of like a whole system. And this actually ended right after Christmas. So I didn't realize that, you know, what's that, six weeks ago or whatever. So it says vintage Atari 400-800 home computer bundle, 410 recorder, programmer, plus games extra. It sold, it sold for $237.50. Um, and so it comes with wow, a couple of controllers, a bunch high. of cartridges. I mean, it's, a, it's quite a setup. So if you look that at all the pictures. Long. And, oh, look, it has a VCS in there, too. <laughs> so Yeah, there was all, all sorts of stuff in here. Does it, it really does come with both computers, doesn't it? 
It comes with the 400 and 800, and they're both boxed. Yeah. And you can see I picked this real quickly. I didn't look at every picture yet. So really, it was a pretty good deal, wasn't it, for $237? Not too bad? Well, I don't know. I don't know that it's a great deal, but that's actually about probably what I would expect it to go for. But it does have the boxes, which, you know, some people care about that. Some people don't. But it's, it's got a, some of the some of the books, some of the magazines, mm-hmm. some of the manuals. It's got cassettes. Yeah, and the cartridges in their boxes are some of them anyway. Yeah. So it's yeah, quite a lot to look at, you know. Yeah, it is. So, and um, so Jeff. So it looks like we lost Jeff. So we've been having problems with his connection all night, and then he's been using his cell phone. So I'm going to move on to the next one, and then we'll see if we can get him back on to do his segment of eBay. So then the the other one I chose is a collection of games. So this one's called Vintage Atari 400, 800 Computer Games Lot Collection with Packaging Retro 1980s. Yeah, so this person squeezed every line in there. But here's a nice example of a, a bunch of games and some good shots of like the, um, I'm trying to get to the pictures, of some of those, those great uh, cover art I like so much. So there's Star Raiders, Missile yeah. Command, Asteroids. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And then they Space Invaders, Music Composer. That's the style I really like. I think the um, the silver, that was later on, wasn't it? Where it's like less yeah, when, art and... When they went to the XE line, they kind of changed how they uh, how they packaged these. Which I can see. Frankly, it looks more modern. I think I agree. But I really like that, you know, that full art and that whole style that they did there. Which I think, I guess, was very 70s. You know, this is pretty good. This is a pretty nice lot. Yeah. Because it's got... A, it's got quite a few boxes. Now, some of the boxes aren't great. For $34, I mean. For $34, yeah. That's a great $34. price, yeah. Oh, yeah, it's not bad you're back. <laughs> yes, I'm back. <laughs> all right, well, we're making it through the show. I explained. So I went ahead on this one. So, uh, yeah, and you saw Jeff. It's got some of that great box art I like. I mean, I, I think... I had room for boxes. I would, I'd, I'd have more of them. Yeah, I wouldn't mind even having just some of this box art framed and just put on the wall. I just, I like it. Mm-hmm. Definitely 80 stuff. I might have to buy some. All right, Jeff, you can take it away. Yeah, well, I still have a connection. <laughs> yeah. Um, my Hurry. first item is <laughs> is a 400, Atari 400 computer console with AC adapter that works. That means somebody tested it. And I, this guy's pictures are just wonderful. It looks like he used a, a, a backdrop for it. But they're really clear, really nice. Uh, the Atari 400 has the... Um, the membrane keyboard. Oh yeah. So you can see, and it's very clean. I like it. Uh, and the price eighty nine dollars. Wow, uh, that's a little higher than uh, Randy predicted. The eight hundred would go for, but maybe these are a little more rare. I don't know. Well, I see it's from a seller called Milestone Collectibles. So apparently they maybe they do this all the time. Nicely or have high quality product. Yeah, maybe it's. Yeah. It's always there. They sell it slowly, but then if you want a really good system, you pay a little extra. Yeah, it looks Just like it's in really good shape, and, and they guarantee that it works and all that. So I guess I, it does seem a little high, but it looks like a, a great example of the 400. So somebody can get into a working system for about 70 to $90. Mm-hmm. And if they're lucky, they may get a few extra uh, pieces of software or cartridges with it. Right. And let's yeah, see. I do. I do like the style a lot. Hmm. It do, does have that futuristic look. And sticking with the 400, um, found another one that has the Atari 400 computer and accessories. This one sold for less. This one sold for 40 bucks, but it did have a Atari 830 modem. Um, what else did it have? Uh, it's hard and, to see on. And some that's important picture. if you want to get online. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. It has. Uh, it looks like an eight eight ten disk drive too, right? And what's yeah? What's the uh, and the ten ten tape recorder? What's the Atari eight fifty? It's that thing in the middle. It's uh, a, oh, it's a um, it's some type of like a. I guess it looks like it's got two plugs for like joysticks and that sort of thing on it. The well, no, the thing is, the, yeah, the eight fifty is an expansion box that has serial standard serial and parallel ports on it. Okay. So you could okay, plug so it S- SIO, and then it would give you standard serial and parallel. That was a deal, uh, man. Because you know, yeah, it was a deal. I haven't so, looked like, recently, but just trying to buy one it. of those acoustic coupler, coupler, couplers, rather, 
those can go for $20, $30, any of them, just to have, you know, if you really want to just have a retro modem mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. Or just, a, you know, the acoustic coupler thing for your the phone, if anyone doesn't know what I'm talking this about. Me, uh, this would have cost me more for shipping than it sold for, but still, for what it came with, including the hardware manuals, uh, it would have been a combined $85.22 for me. And even just to have the extra peripherals working or not, especially the rare ones, I would consider that a good deal. Yeah, it's a pretty good deal. The, the only reason it didn't go more is that the stuff isn't tested. So but it looks I mean, pretty. It does look pretty. <laughs> and, you know, it's That's, it's no. iffy if it were. I mean, not iffy, but, yeah, you take a chance. But the odds are in your favor it will work, I think, generally speaking. But, of course, it, it still could, could not work. I'd say what probably have, what, 75 80% chance, just like any old computer pretty much. P- pretty reliable. Uh, that's kind of been my experience, I guess, whenever mm-hmm. I've – actually, I've never bought something that didn't work. <laughs> I'm hoping mine still work when I finally dig them out and start using them. All I know is my Atari 800 has a broken keycap. I guess that odd, those odds have to start lowering at some point because as time continues to tick right. by. Yeah, that's a good point. Oh, anyway, let's see how much battery I have left. Well, we better close the show. Not that we weren't there at that point already, but I just want to make sure that this Band-Aid assembly. (laughs) We'll see. (laughs) I still have to close the show. Anyway, um, thanks so much, Randy. uh, We're glad to have you on the show here, and thank you for uh, um, coming on board and helping us with these uh, Atari computers. Sure. Thanks a lot for having me on the show. I've really had a lot of fun talking with you guys, talking vintage computers with you guys, since I have no friends. And uh, <laughs> I also want to mention, if you guys I, don't mind, I, it's just like that. Um, it's like the Alcoholics Anonymous thing, right? The No Friends right. Anonymous. <laughs> right. Um, it just so happens that my next uh, show on Foppy Days is going to be about the uh, 400 and 800. And I've got some special guests lined up, and we'll be covering a detailed history of the machines, emulation, websites, books, magazines, tech specs, and more. So if you want to learn even more about these machines, tune into Floppy Days later this month, and you can find out more about the machines. So that's the end of my commercial. Absolutely. And we'll we'll retweet and tweet. Yeah, and also I guess the the next Atari show for us will be the... I mean, the computer will be the Atari ST, so we'll definitely have to have you on. Try to have you on then. Yeah. If okay. You, if you can come on, right, Jeff? Am I not being too oh, bold? Absolutely. Absolutely. That'd be fine. As long as I have pissed off. As long as I have pissed off, Jeff. Right? Oh wait, someone's <laughs> texting me. Oh wait, don't have him back. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, uh, it's been, been fun, guys. I appreciate it. Maybe I'll get my internet connection working better by then. You better. <laughs> I'm, just glad, I'm just glad we didn't steal your thunder with your 400 800 show so um no, we, you know, we kind of do the... we kind of do surface stuff here we try to just surface yeah stuff. and i and i think the two shows will complement each other pretty well because you guys covered it at a high level and i'll really get into a lot of detail and a lot of history a lot more than you know than we covered today so i think uh, they complement each other pretty well so we just play them in tandem like those Saturday morning uh, power hours that they used to have on TV. Yeah. Right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, next show. Um, for the next show, we will be covering the whatever we decide. <laughs> and it'll be released on yeah. Friday, February 27th. We have discussed oh, it. Late already. <laughs> <laughs> we, we never filled in that show note, did we? <laughs> no. no. I figured you guys were to fill that in before the show. Was I over, forgot right? about it. <laughs> not a problem we, we were busy we were trying to get uh randy on here and trying to get my stuff working so we didn't even think about it but there we will talk about something and it, it might be a surprise anyway our website is historyofpersonalcomputing.com um and follow us both on twitter and facebook also check out randy on both the floppy days podcast and on antique the atari 8-bit podcast you can email him at floppydays at gmail.com Send feedback to feedback at historyofpersonalcomputing.com because we really love to hear from you. Please tell someone about us. Write a review on iTunes or spread the word with Facebook, 
Google Plus, or Twitter. Perhaps you're in a specialty discussion group. Tell them. Hey, Jeff. And what? Guess what? I know what the next show is going to be. We did discuss it. And so I needed to change that. Remember, we're doing a very special show next time. It's going to be on the birth of the computer magazine up to 1980. Because that's where we oh, are right, right now. Right. Not... Our special episode. Yeah. Last show, we ended with the ZX80. So we're, we're roughly around 1980 now. So we're going to cover computer magazines up to 1980. Next show. Stay tuned cool. for that. In the meantime. Not... Sounds good. <laughs> Have you played Atari today? <laughs> thanks again, Randy. Yeah, thanks, guys. <laughs>